Our text is from the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 30. The last uh, two paragraphs, or last paragraph, depends on how it's divided, in chapter 2. In this, uh, Paul is uh, giving them a certain uh, projection of what he plans on doing. He plans on sending Timothy to them after it is known how things go with him in Rome. Uh, Remember, he is in Rome at this time. Uh, We uh, pick up Philippians where Acts leaves off, as it were, those two years that he is awaiting his appeal uh, to Caesar to be addressed. It's coming to the end of that time. He's looking to the possible release uh, at this juncture. Uh, he is very hopeful and is sending word to the Philippians. They have there's one of the poorer churches that he had founded, but one that nevertheless was quite faithful in providing for him. And, and he is letting them know that he is grateful for that. He is sending uh, word to them. Uh, and he's doing this in two stages. First with Epaphroditus, which is in the second part of our passage this morning. And then with Timothy. He starts with Timothy because Timothy is his messenger to them, his uh, envoy. Uh, but he won't send Timothy until he knows for sure how things will go. He's sending Epaphroditus immediately uh, because he's been sick, he's been ill. And uh, the, the occasion that brought Epaphroditus to Paul, uh, the, the, his imprisonment, uh, the Philippians' desire to send him because he was, he was their messenger, uh, to relieve uh, many of the burdens of Paul, uh, is coming to an end. Uh, this letter, uh, by ancient tradition, is not explicitly said in the letter itself, uh, arrived in Philippi by the hands of Epaphroditus. He's the one that was sent with the letter. And so there's this two stages of, of communication between Paul and the Philippians, Uh, through their intermediaries, and ultimately uh, the hope is that Paul himself would be amongst them. Uh, The history and the traditional histories and reading between the lines and some of the other letters, this indeed was the case. Uh, Paul has two imprisonments in Rome. The first one uh, ends well, the latter one ends not so well. Uh, We're going to look in this passage, though, about certain things it tells us about the service of Christ, the ministry, if you will, or what it takes to, uh, for uh, an officer of the church, whether he is an elder or a deacon, uh, then that includes the teaching elders, the ministers, or whatever he may be, uh, and also the implications of that because officers of the church are not a class distinct from the body of Christ, but rather a, a, a role, a, a work given to the body of Christ within the body of Christ. And so the, the differences of them are generally one of degree, uh, not of a categorical differences. So this teaches us about all of our piety and all of our responsibilities in the service of Jesus Christ. So those are the things we're going to look at before I read the passage. I wanted to kind of lay that out for us. Uh, before we read the passage, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading of his word but also the preaching of it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ, and we come to sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul, whom you inspired by your Holy Spirit infallibly for us, 
that we might be taught, corrected, and reproved, and instructed in righteousness, that we might be fully equipped for the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask that this word today would find good soil within our hearts by your Spirit, that as he gave the word so that he would dwell within our hearts to receive the word today. And we ask Christ would be magnified there, and that we would be sincerely taught, and that we would not go forth here forgetting what we've heard, but letting it shape our devotion to you, our work in this world, and our hopes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from uh, the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may, may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with a father he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, uh, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, uh, carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. So Paul is sending Epaphroditus to them immediately, and then later intending to send uh, Timothy. And he commends Timothy and, and extols his virtues, but he also does, and by introducing Timothy first, whom they all acknowledge to be an evangelist and a right hand of the apostle and someone they uh, respected, he also very mercifully and compassionately unites Epaphroditus in the same work. Uh, we'll look at three things that Paul brings out about Timothy that make him the right man to minister unto them. And all of these things are reflected then when he goes on to mention Epaphroditus. Now this was necessary because Epaphroditus was apparently sent to Paul as part of their service to him. Uh, we read in chapter 4 verse 10 that uh, Epaphroditus brings something of a small gift to, uh, for Paul, but it's not just the stuff that he brings to Paul, it's himself. He is the representative of the Philippians in Rome to father Paul's work. When Paul writes in the first part of the epistle, those of you who are here with him, that they were united with him in this work, it was partly through the fact that they loved him, they were praying for him, and they had sent one of their own to them, to Paul, uh, to bear some of that burden. That was their intent. But what we see here is that poor Epaphroditus, in that work, he either overworks himself, or he had traveled in a bad time of the year, 
or the fact that Philippi was a relative backwater compared to the cosmopolitan Rome. And we know how sometimes if you go from one place to another, you come open up to all these diseases and whatnot, uh, that, that he sort of got struck in that way. But from verse 30, it's clear that his sickness was in the course of his faithful ministering to, uh, well, on behalf of the Philippians in service to Christ for Paul. And so their great worry and concern was that the one that they had sent to be a a help unto Paul had become a burden. And Paul very graciously and kindly uh, reminds them, no, no, that's not the case at all. Uh, For one thing, the Lord was merciful to Epaphroditus and brought him back, but also that he was a very dear help to them. And, And so he's sending him back. He's sending him word that Timothy's coming, and he unites Epaphroditus and Timothy. They're like men. One is Paul's messenger to the Philippians, and the other is a return of the Philippians' messenger unto Paul. And so as we look, we keep that in mind, and we'll be going between Timothy and Epaphroditus as we look at these necessary uh, commitments for a proper gospel ministry And then also necessary commitments for serving Christ in the gospel, no matter what the particulars of your call is. And so the first one, and there's three. Uh, Normally I have two and then draw another one. There are going to be three points here. Uh, The first one is, is that there needs to be a love for the church. And we're not talking about the church building. We're not talking about the... uh, Sometimes the, the accoutrements that uh, spring up around the institution of the church. But we're talking about the people. Uh, the, the people of God. The sons of God. The kingdom of God. The, the commonwealth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The brothers and sisters in the faith. The saints. However you want to describe them. The bride of Christ. And they're described in a richness of vocabulary in the New Testament and in the Old There has to be a love of the servants to that institution for the people of that institution. Uh, This is what Paul says in, in, uh, in verse 20. I am no man like minded who will naturally care for your state. Now, this doesn't mean that all of the people that were in Rome at the time were were of no had no care for the Philippian church. It does mean that none that were available to be sent had the same concern for the Philippians as Timothy had. Now, this excludes Epaphroditus here. Epaphroditus doesn't come under condemnation here. Uh, Epaphroditus clearly has the same concern, as we will read. But he's already being sent. He's being sent with the letter. Timothy's coming later, and so when Timothy, when Paul is making these plans, uh, Timothy's the only one that's available that has a concern and a heart for them, and that's absolutely necessary for a proper ministry. Uh, for one thing, if we don't have, and, and I say we, the ministers, but also you who are elders and deacons, if you do not have a love for the body of Christ Jesus, whom you have called to serve then you're not really serving Christ. But Christ himself, he's the eternal son of God, God of very God. He is God. There's nothing that can improve his happiness. 
There's nothing that can improve his situation in the world. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And there are sinners that are justly coming under condemnation. And there's nothing in their sin that would necessarily that would make necessary their redemption from it. God would be still good and just and even loving if he brought them all under ruin. But God the Father has those that he wishes to redeem from destruction. And the Son, loving his Father, but also loving that body, gives himself for them. He's the good shepherd. Uh, In John chapter 10, verses 11 through uh, 15. It's actually a lot bigger passage, but we'll limit ourselves here. The Lord Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. What makes me the good shepherd? The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth it, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and in know of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, sometimes we think, oh, the church would be so much better if it was as it was in the very first century. We wouldn't have all this nominalism. We wouldn't have all this Christians in name only. We wouldn't have all this uh, career service and, and a manipulation of, of our affections and people who are in office and ministers that uh, are, are serving themselves and rather than Christ Jesus. But notice that Paul is writing in the very heart of the apostolic age. And that's a problem even for Paul. It's a problem even for the Philippians. There will always be wolves in sheep clothing, or rather to use the picture of Christ in John 10, there will always be amongst the true shepherds, mercenaries, hirelings, those that are there while the getting's good, but when the getting gets bad, they're gone. And this isn't just, this is more prevalent and and perhaps uh, more common in office, but it's also common and prevalent amongst the membership. This is in uh, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, the the seed that's scattered on the stony ground, that is the shallow ground that has the bedrock underneath, where the seed springs up to a plant and it looks lively and wonderful but it has no root and can't get to the good water and when the sun comes up when persecution comes when trial or trouble comes it withers away why? because it was there for the good but that was all it was there for and when trouble comes and when things don't look good it has no root and cannot be sustained the Christ is the model for Christian service. If you're going to serve Christ, you need to follow in the wake of Christ. And churches need to seek for themselves and need to, uh, uh, you know, when they elect and when they choose and when they pray to see who God has chosen for them, they need to be praying for officers, deacons, elders, pastors that love them and care for them. You know, you might think, well, obviously, nobody wants somebody that hates us. That's true. But you would be surprised, perhaps, to know. And this tends to be the more prominent the church is, the more tempting it is to get somebody who is not so much concerned for them, but somebody who is 
is a, is a pastor we can brag about, uh, a, a celebrity or, or somebody who reinforces our intellectual uh, aspirations or our uh, entertainment aspirations, that there's a million different things that churches look for oftentimes and forget to look for somebody who loves them and then don't understand why uh, problems arise when uh, that man is, uh, is, seems to be seeking his own way and not really concerned for them. It's very important that, that the servants of the church love the church. Uh, they must be an example to the whole flock because it is part of the uh, commandment, part of our duty uh, for the whole In John chapter 13, uh, verses 34 and 35, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says unto his disciples there, and he was appointing them apostles, and he was giving them to lead the way. But as John mentions to us in his first epistle, this commandment wasn't just for the leaders of the church. It was for all that would follow Jesus Christ. Uh, and he says to them in verse 33, Little children, let a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, Whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you. And a new commandment I give unto you, That ye love one another, as I have loved you, That ye also love one another. And by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, If ye love one another. Now, there are many ways we describe one who follows Jesus Christ. One sinner saved by grace. And should know that. And should be deeply affected by that. And that should lead him to love fellow sinners saved by grace. And without that love, there is, there is not that humility. There is no evidence of that humility that is necessary uh, for the salvation of Christ's people. And like Timothy, uh, then Epaphroditus fits this bill. Uh, we read in verses... Uh, 26 and following. Uh, Paul writes, For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because uh, that ye had heard that he had been sick. Now he wasn't homesick, but he had heard that they had heard that he was nigh unto death. And indeed he had been, as Paul says in verse 27. But it was their anxiety that moved him to anxiety. He was almost indeed sick to death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow and sorrow. Uh, there's a, you, you could read this in a, a certain sense of Paul being self-serving here, but no, this is part of that affection. Uh, the death of a saint is sad to other saints. Uh, Epaphroditus was useful. He had work to do. But even if he had not, even if the Lord had called him to himself, and even as Paul had said in chapter 1, it is better to die and to be with Christ. Nevertheless, I have a work that Christ has given me to do. And it is always a sorrow to see that cut short. Remember, Jesus himself wept at the funeral of Lazarus, even though he knew what he was about to do. Because he had compassion and knew the misery of death in his life. I sent him therefore the more carefully, or the more earnestly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful, knowing that no longer are two people separated, uh, that ought not to be separated to, to groups, but that they are united and enjoy. Uh, 
Uh, remember, Ephrathoditis is, as our English translations say, a messenger of the church. The actual Greek there is the apostle of the church, the envoy of the church, the ambassador of the church. It indicates that Ephrathoditis isn't just somebody carrying letters, but he is part of the, uh, the ministry of that congregation, and they are without, as he's with, the, uh, with Paul in Rome. Uh, and so Paul is gathered, is sending to them Epaphroditus, who is like-minded with Timothy in his love for the congregation. And this, this is just part about sincerity. i just add this. In chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, we read Paul's pressing the church to love one another and, and to love the, the work of Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I longed after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, and to glory and praise of God. There, to, to love unto holiness and righteousness, Paul is calling them to that. He acknowledges that they do love one another, but he's calling them more to, to struggle all the more in this, to, to work it out, to uh, be diligent in this. And if Paul himself didn't love them, it would have fallen on flat ears. No one can call others to love who does not love them. And so it's necessary for Timothy and Epaphroditus and anyone else who takes up the ministry of Jesus Christ, which is about the unity of the brethren of the church as, together as it is much against uh, uh, deliverance from the sins of this world, then they must love. So that's the first one. The second is that not only must they love the church, uh, but they also must serve Christ faithfully above serving oneself. Uh, this is, would be a love to Christ, then. That Christ is first, and all things come out of that devotion. That Timothy serves Christ above serving himself. That Ephrathitus serves Christ above serving himself. This we get in verse 21. For all seek their own, and not the things which are of Christ. This is uh, just an outflowing of what he said earlier in the chapter in verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in humility or lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. There is to be a commality, a unity of purpose, a unity of affection, a unity of identity uh, in the body of Christ. This is not one that... that that uh, erases individuality. In fact, it embraces and, and moves with individuality into the fullness of, of a fellowship that is genuine. But nevertheless, uh, that all of that needs to be a self-denial. And if we deny ourselves, we have to acknowledge something, and that is Christ. Uh, that He is... Uh, the pinnacle and the purpose of our service that none is called to serve himself. Now there are many that, that act upon a call to serve themselves. In chapter 1, again, 
we read about an interesting situation in the church of Rome in verses 15 through 17. Some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the others of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. He goes on to note that, you know, whether they're doing it against him or not, they're still preaching Christ. This is not false preachers. This is not heretics. These aren't people that were corrupting the gospel. These were men that knew the gospel and preached it, but for whatever reason, uh, through to rub it in Paul's face, that they were free to preach while he was in bounds, or, or envious of his notoriety within the church and seeking to gain their own notoriety by preaching more freely. Paul didn't care for any of that. He acknowledged that it was there. Paul didn't care for any of that. Christ was still magnified. But that doesn't mean that those that were preaching out of envy were not bringing judgment upon themselves. That's not the ideal. And Paul doesn't bring it up to, to excuse them. Paul brings it up to say that even when their motives aren't right, Christ is doing his work in the world. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, uh, Paul mentions Demas, who was uh, at one time a faithful uh, companion of him, and he's often commended in several of the epistles. But he uh, has forsaken them with this awful uh, evaluation, having loved this present world more than Christ. Timothy is not that way. Timothy is not seeking his own, but seeking the things of Jesus Christ. If you uh, look in 1 John chapter 2, in 15 and 17, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Why? Is the world bad always? No. The world is created by God. There are wonderful things in the world, and the Lord will give them to you. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Seek ye, because, you know, all these things, the clothing, the food, the raiment... The, the Lord knows you need them, and the heathen, they seek after them, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things He will add unto you. It's not that we are, are monks and nuns in the world. It's not this sort of Gnostic or Buddhist or Indian asceticism where we're like gurus uh, out in gymnosophists, out in the wilderness, and... Uh, without any sort of the, the comforts of life. That's not the point at all. But there is a living for them that is not right. And it's a foolish thing. Because they're vanity. Vanity doesn't mean they're empty, meaningless. It means that they are passing and of passing value. They're not an end unto themselves. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, it passeth away, and also the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. There is a heart after eternity and after Christ, and that means that uh, we make decisions. When Jesus Christ says, anyone who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, or anyone who does not hate his brother or sister is not worthy of me. He's not actually saying, hate your brother or sister. What he is saying is, is that when anything comes between you and him, 
you go with him and reject the rest. That there is to be nothing that, uh, that, that hinders your service of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is your all, therefore you ought to give him his, your all. That basic Christian obedience. And remember Matthew 10, verses 38 and 39. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Uh, there, is, there is the sense of, of devotion to Christ that counts little the life. Uh, that is outside of Christ. In 1 John 3.16, he says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That there is a certain Christ in going before us set the pattern uh, that we ought to follow. And, and Epaphroditus too uh, is in this, uh, this work. In verse 30, we read, He's to be honored because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death. He wasn't just nigh unto death. He was nigh unto death for the work of Christ. Not regarding his life, or rather gambling away his life to supply your lack of service to me. That last phrase sounds worse in English than it does in, in Greek. It just means that they were unable to, to, to serve him. He was their representative in serving him. Uh, and, and he did that faithfully to them and to Christ not worrying about his own life. That is what the ministry calls for. That is what serving the gospel calls for. That's what serving the gospel as a pastor, as a teaching elder. It's what serving the gospel as an elder or a deacon. It's what serving the gospel as a saint of Jesus Christ requires of us. That Christ comes first. So first, there's a love for the church, a devotion to Christ, and then also, because we have love, we have affection, we have zeal, but those things without a normative standard can actually be quite evil. And so we have a third thing put there, that they're united in the apostolic faithfulness. That they are followers of what is good and true. Verse 22, you know the proof of it. That, that phrase itself says that there needs to be discernment, not only within the ministry of the church, but also in the congregations of the churches. That they need to be discerning and judging and proving their officers. Now, part of the work of the ministry is judging and proving and, and evaluating and training other officers. But that is not simply their task. It relies on the church itself as well. And if, you, if you're called to do that task, you need to you're expected to know the faith that underlies that task. You know the proof of it. There's a son with the father. He served me with the gospel. In other words, he's following. He's, he's going to be the next generation of Paul the Apostle. That's, that's what the imagery suggests. And, and he is slaving for the gospel. That's, it's a reiteration of his, his devotion and self-denial in this work. Uh, in 1 Timothy 1-2, 2 Timothy 1-2, Paul is, uh, writes to Timothy, You are my son in the faith. 
In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy, same person, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, I can't be with you, Corinth, but little me is going to be with you in Corinth. Or the next me is going to be with you in Corinth. Uh, and, and this is what he's telling the Philippians as well. Uh, and, and we see this description of Epaphroditus in verse 25. It's the same sort of thing. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my companion in labor, and my fellow soldier. Uh, he's your messenger and servant to my wants. He, he, you have given him a task, but he has been faithful in our common faith, our common work, and our common conflict. It's a, it's a very descriptive uh, uh, and, and suggestive description of the work of the ministry. That there is a common faith, a common work, a common conflict. There's a brotherhood of faith. There is a, a, a comradeship in the labor. And, and there is a, a, a brotherhood in the conflict and the soldiering that has to be done where these things uh, can illustrate what the, the ministry and serving Christ is like. And faithfulness is a, a sort of warfare. Uh, we, you know, if you read in 2 Corinthians... Uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 3 through 6, uh, Paul writes, he says, and reminds them, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh. For the pulling down of stronghold, uh, strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and brings into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. There's a judgment and a discipline that is required. It's not corporal discipline, he says. But it's, it's that humbling, that heart that rises up in rebellion and pride. And that's a real work. It's a real conflict. It's a real war. Uh, in First Timothy. In First Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Last part of chapter 1. Paul writes, This charge commit I unto thee, son Timothy. Notice here that, that, that filial relationship. According to the prophecies which went before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Aeneas and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It calls us to shudder in the fact in the seriousness of the charge he passed. But note that the description is nevertheless one of conflict. And to sit in church and wonder, it's like my pastor is always urging me to do something, to change, and our, our, he's always bringing up these sins, or I, I'm not really, the word is doing it. Um, uh, and, uh, but but even your pastor feels this sometimes. Can't we just rest in the grace of Christ? You know, this is why we're given the Lord's Day, that we might rest and, 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 and hear the, the admonitions, but not need to put them into full effect till come Monday. 
Uh, and this, we're told in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 9, that this rest is a picture of that final rest that we will have. We ought to long for the day when we don't have to war against sin and against our own hearts. But that day ain't today. If you begin your rest now, you are surrendering the battlefield and will make shipwreck of the faith. And here's the thing, and this is how it kind of pulls back into Timothy and Epaphroditus. We need help in doing that. We need to be united in doing that. This war is not one that we fight as individuals. We're not Greek heroes battling Demogorgon or or whatever sort of weird monster comes out of the Titans. We are soldiers in an army. And we are to back one another up and reinforce one another. And part of the structure that Christ has given is the, the officers of the church for that. It's not the only thing. Uh, we need to, or even if we have terrible officers, we need to be uh, faithful in this work. And encouraging one another in this work. And we need to take it seriously like a warfare. Now... Looking at these three things, the fact that there must be a love for the church, a zeal for Christ, and then also the standard. This kind of goes with those, the, 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 the philosophical absolutes, if you will. You have the goodness, the beauty, the love. You have the duty and the obedience, the zeal, the righteousness, the justice. And you have truth. The standard by which it all has to cohere. And if you are short in any one of those things, you're short in what is required. But there are also a few other little things that we pick out here. It's just little added lessons and uses. Uh, First, we ought to, by the last point, realize that discernment is not only possible, it is necessary. That, That Paul says, you know the proof of it. Uh, there is a true standard for love and duty. This world doesn't like that. And to this day and age, we tend to, and this is not a new thing, this is historical, at least since the Enlightenment, and, and maybe even longer than that, and probably all the way back to Adam. That as long as I have the right heart and the right zeal, uh, it doesn't really matter by what standard I'm doing it. But that's not the scriptural definition. Scriptural says we seek truth there too. We we don't want to be zealous. Uh, We don't want to be northern kingdomers who loved the Jehovah God and built uh, golden calves to him at Bel, at, at Dan and Bethel. And give ourselves to that devotion knowing that God is going to cast us off. Uh, the, the Israelites in the wilderness caused Aaron to build them a golden calf. This is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they gave themselves to him, but not according to wisdom. And many died. Not as the movie says, the, the ground swallowed and opened them up. That was a different sin. Um, Moses deputized the, Levi- the Levites and had them go slaughter But it was serious. And those things are mentioned in the New Testament by Paul himself as reasons why we are serious. Those things are not just an Old Testament archaic thing. God takes seriously his worship now. All saints need to know the standard. 
In 1 John 4.1, he says, Test the spirits, whether they be of God, and he expects you to be able to do it. There are many charlatans in the world that will come and say, the Lord told me this. And when you say, well, I don't see that in my word of God, they'll say, you are quenching the Holy Spirit. And they are lying and using the manipulations of Satan against you. All you have to do, turn to John 4.1. Test the spirits. It means you're required by apostolic authority to measure up the gospel that is preached unto you, that it is the gospel that is revealed in the Word of God. Otherwise, you're a slave to every charismatic leader that will bring upon himself the blasphemy of the charge of speaker of the Holy Spirit. It's an important thing. And you need men uh, that lead the congregation that take that seriously. But we also see that love is a mutual bond. Note that in verse 29, Paul, commending Epaphroditus to them, reminds them that they need to respect him, that they need to honor him, uh, that they need to hold such in reputation, that they need to honor good leaders that love the Lord, that are faithful to the standard, that are zealous not only for Christ, but give themselves wholeheartedly to the people of the church. Or to the church, we should say. That, that we labor together. And if you, want to, if you want officers that love you, you have to love. If you want brothers and sisters in Christ that love you, you have to love. It's not to say that that will always be equal. It's not to say that we will always like each other as, as we ought to. Uh, there is a discipline. It's just like in a family. Their family... Uh, you got to, to find it and work it out because they are human beings and you are too. Sinners. But it's an active reciprocal process. Uh, if, if what you want is the flashy and entertaining and, and, and the popular in the world, that's what you'll get. Uh, if you want the one that loves you, you love him or her, if the brother or sister in Christ. And that is the ideal. That is what Christ calls us to as one body, loving one another, serving one another, uh, at all expense, say, the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. We ask that you would give us that heart and love for one another and our zeal for Christ. And that we would, with knowledge and a love for the truth, serve your gospel in this present world. We ask, dear Lord, that as officers of your church, I lift up myself and the elders and deacons, that we would grow deeper in our love for this congregation and our love to Christ and our love for the truth of Christ. And we ask, dear Lord, on behalf of all gathered, that we all would love one another as Christ has told us, that we would give ourselves to Christ and war manfully against this world, and that we would be found faithful in his name. Amen.